0: Well, last week, Elliot taught us on the genre in the Psalms called lament, specifically personal lament. Elliot showed us how to pray, sing, and weep when our circumstances are hard, our soul is cast down. It's very helpful for us to consider. But in the message last week, we considered the struggle of faith when circumstances are not our fault. They're being done to us. So we're in a difficult situation and it's done to us. But what happens if the struggle, the reason we're in lament is actually our fault? Due to our sin, our failure, our unbelief, our volitional rebellion. How do we sing and weep and lament when that happens? Well friends, the Psalms speak to that as well. If you'll turn with me to Psalm 51 Psalm chapter 51 Now before we read Psalm 51 I've got to speak to the context of Psalm 51 In 2 Samuel chapter 11, we find that David, it's springtime, and David has not gone into battle, leading the army like kings do. He stays back. And as he stays back, one day he goes out on his roof and lingers and watches a beautiful lady named Bathsheba as she bathes. David lusts, and his lust leads to inquiring about this lady. The person whom he requires about comes back to him and says, This is Bathsheba, Uriah the Hittite's wife. Ding, 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 red flag, go no further. David doesn't really care. He summons Bathsheba. He commits adultery, possibly raping Bathsheba. We don't know the details. Bathsheba sends word weeks later to David that she is pregnant. And David wants to cover up his sin like we do. We try to cover our sin. So he summons Uriah from the battle in order to try to get him to go home and sleep with his wife. And then the baby would not be known as David's, but would be thought of as Uriah's. Uriah, however, will not do that. He said that his army and the men and the commanders and the ark of God are all dwelling in tents. They're all all out at the battle. How can he go to the comfort of his own home when everybody's at war? David even tries to, to get Uriah to go back by getting him drunk. But he will not budge on that integrity. The king has very little integrity. The soldier much. So David sends him back into battle, tells Joab, the general, that Uriah needs to be put at the, the, where the most dense, hard fighting is happening, and tell them to pull back so that Uriah would be killed. David essentially murders Uriah, causes circumstances so that it happens. After Bathsheba mourns the loss of her husband, David brings her into his palace and makes her his wife. 2 Samuel chapter 11 ends this way. The last verse says this, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And then 2 Samuel 12, the very next chapter, a guy named Nathan, a prophet, comes to David and tells David about a poor man that had a precious little lamb, this lamb that was so close to the owner, kind of ate at his table, slept in the house, like was like a family pet. It even says like a daughter to the man. Yet there was a rich man who had lots of lambs and a traveler came to visit the rich man. The rich man did not want to kill one of his lambs so he took the poor man's lamb, killed it to feed the traveler. And David is enraged. The text says David's anger was greatly kindled against the man and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lambs fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan turns to him and says, David, you are the man. That's what you did David. Nathan then recounts to To David, both the blessing of the Lord that's been on his life as well as the discipline that is about to come. God will forgive David, but there will be very real consequences for his sin. The sword will not depart from his house. There will not be peace in his lifetime. Rebellion in David's home would come, which you see if you keep reading in 2 Samuel, his son Absalom. Public shame and embarrassment. And then the the greatest consequence, the child that is in Bathsheba at that moment shall die. Will be born and will get sick and will die. This is the context of Psalm 51. So, just as we're reading Psalm 51, we've got to picture what's going on the, the weight of Nathan leaving the room and David weeping and sitting down and pinning this psalm. He's grievously rebelled against God, and there are going to be real consequences. How do we respond in that moment? Psalm 51, we're going to read the first five verses to start. Here's what he says. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before you. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. May God bless the reading of his word. When we studied The book of Job years ago, we looked at the extremes of Job, his extreme prosperity, his extreme adversity, and those extremes teach us as we don't walk in those extremes. This is an extreme of personal lament. Hopefully, adultery and murder are not commonplace for us, though Jesus speaks to both adultery and murder, and what that looks like in our hearts kind of sets the bar higher, but this psalm teaches us how to personally lament and repent and grieve when our consequences when the struggle is because of our choices, our sin. So this is not though just a song for David. This was a song for God's people when they sin. This is a song for us when we sin. Not if we sin, when we sin. This is a song that we need to know. The first point is this. Admitting sin and pleading mercy. Admitting sin, pleading mercy. Verse 1 says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Notice David's cry is for mercy. Definition of mercy is this. Not getting the punishment that you deserve. Have mercy on me, O God. David says that he has sinned. He has transgressed God's law. He's no longer denying that. He's committed adultery with an innocent woman. He's murdered a loyal soldier. And let's just note that this is significant. It doesn't appear that this stuff is mutual with with Bathsheba. Like his power play as king is not good. This is extremely problematic. Possibly rape. This is bad. And let's also note that Uriah is not just a soldier of a bunch of soldiers. Within the soldiers of David were called the, the mighty men. These are like the Navy SEALs. There's 37 of them. Losing one of them is a really big deal. Uriah was one of them. You see the list later in 2 Samuel. He's one of them. He's one of the mighty men. And David willingly sacrifices this mighty man, this elite soldier, on the altar of his sin. Friends, we're never able to manage our sin. Let's note that. We are never able to manage and contain our sin. It will always hurt ourselves, and it will hurt others. We see that emphatically in this passage. It's really bad. But David is just starting to see it. As Nathan leaves the room, it's it's starting to click in. But we know that this isn't the first time that that God has pushed this on David. There's a period of time, if you read this text, there's a period of time that happens where David continues to grow hard. He suppresses the truth, or, or as Romans 1 says, he exchanges the truth for a lie. That's what we do in our sin. We exchange the truth for a lie. For we know in Psalm 32, which David writes right around the same time, he says this, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. God had been convicting David for a while. And he continued to push it away and push it away and push it away. He knew something was wrong. But he continued to harden his own heart. And friend, let's notice how sin works. Most scholars believe that David should have been away at battle, not lounging around the castle, We get in trouble when we have idle time and we're not using it to fulfill the responsibilities God has given us. When we're not doing the things God has called us to do, we're walking in temptation. Then David lingers and inquires about Bathsheba. He should have seen and looked away. He should have seen and looked away. He shouldn't have even been there, but if he's there, he should look away. He shouldn't have inquired about this lady made in God's image. David was then told it was Uriah's wife. Here's another way of escape, friends. Like First Corinthians says that there's, there's a way of escape in the midst of temptation. There's always a way of escape given. Here's a way of escape. This servant, whoever inquired, says, don't you know this is Uriah's wife? Ding, ding, ding. Way of escape. Turn. but he chooses not to take the way of escape. Friends, sin can be repented of upstream before it gets downstream into more consequences, a harder heart, and severe uh, repercussions. But no, David doesn't repent upstream. He gets harder and harder, more calloused, and he then sprints towards sin, grotesque sin. That, That months earlier, he probably thought, I would never do something like that. But now as he pins Psalm 51, the veil has been removed. He sees what has happened. Nathan says, you are the man. David, you're the one who did all this. God pulls back the curtain and David is shattered. Friends, says, God ever pulled back the curtain on your sin? Maybe a, a thing you thought you would never do? or say, or act out, and then you're like, oh my gosh. And all of a sudden, you get a glimpse at your pride, or your anger, or your lust, or whatever, and God pulls it back, and you're like, oh Lord, I didn't didn't think I would go there. I didn't think I would do that, or say that, or think that, or act that out. There are times when God shows us pulls back our sin. Friends, we're all capable of the same thing David did here. So let's none of us sit back and be like, David, wow, that sin. No, welcome to the party, sinners. Like, we are all capable of this. Lord, I have sinned. Have mercy on me, a sinner. David says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Now get what he's doing here. In Exodus chapter 34, God reveals himself, who he is. Moses says, let me see your glory, God. And here's how God responds. He says his name. This is how he declares himself. Yahweh, Yahweh, or the Lord, the Lord, the God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving a and transgression and sin that 's the God David needs in this moment when the veil's pulled back, when the heart is exposed, when the sin is so clear I need that God, God the God of mercy. David appeals to the God of mercy he appeals to the steadfast love of God. Now notice David does not start recounting the good things he's done. He doesn't like look at his sin and be like, but God, look at my resume. Look, I've been, I've been a man after your own heart. I killed Goliath. Look, the sword's over here. Look at all the good things I've done. Here, God, I deserve forgiveness. No, he doesn't do that. He also doesn't start making excuses. Well, look at my past trauma. I grew up in the field tending sheep. My dad actually forgot about me when Samuel went to him. I was small. My brothers made fun of me. Saul tried to kill me a bunch of times. He doesn't just start making excuses, he doesn't avoid, minimize, or downplay his sin. In verses one through three, he uses the personal pronoun my five times. This is my sin. I'm owning this. Friends, welcome to maturity. In mature Christianity, we own our sin. We don't start making excuses for our past or our, our we don't give our resume. We own it. We realize it's our sin. We've chosen this path. But what does David do and what should we do? fall on the mercy and steadfast love of God alone. Friends, when we see our sin, we've got nothing else. We have nowhere else to go. There's no hope apart from God. There's no negotiating a deal here. David continues, verse 3, For I know my transgression, my sin, is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Commentator Derek Kinder says this, his sin was treason. His sin was treason. Ultimately, it's treason. He goes against his king. The king of Israel goes against the king of kings. Kidner notes that in 2 Samuel 11, David is asking this question, How can I cover my tracks? How can I cover my tracks? But in Psalm 51, here's his question. How could I treat God like this? How could I walk this path, God? Do you see the dramatic shift from a self-focus to a God-focus? A self-focus to a God-focus? In verses 3 through 4, David acknowledges his sin, but we might be thinking, how did David sin only against God? I'm pretty sure he sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah. Like, yes, he did. But the sin against Bathsheba and Uriah is small compared to the sin against God. God who is the one who sits as judge God who is the only one who can blot out his sin. God who is the one he has to plead for forgiveness and mercy. Friends, God alone is creator and sustainer, and all sin is primarily against him. That's why when we repent or you teach your kids how to repent, you repent repent to God first, vertically. And then you repent the horizontal First here, then here. Because all of our sin that's here is ultimately here against God. Verse five Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and sin did my mother conceive me. David is speaking of the pervasiveness of his sin. This would be categorized as original sin. He's born into sin. He's not blaming his mom. Charles Spurgeon actually says here's what he's saying I naturally lean toward forbidden things. My very person is obnoxious to your wrath, God. I just lean this direction. Whereas Romans 3 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Derek Kidner says this, we are warped creatures. And when the veil gets pulled back like you see in Isaiah 6, and Isaiah sees the holiness of God, he says, I, I'm a man of sinful lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of sinful lips. Friends, the struggle with sin and our need for mercy is not unusual. It's not unusual in our life. Martin Luther wrote 95 theses, nailed them on a a door. The very first one of the 95, he says this, Jesus willed the entire life of the believer to be one of repentance. Jesus willed that our entire lives would be lives of repentance where we are coming closer to God, walking toward God and running from sin, but as we stumble along the way, as we progressively grow, we would be people who have to repent, repent of our unbelief today, our anger tomorrow, our lust, our greed, our pride, our resentment, like just the list can go on and on and on. But it's normal, so then the pleas, the need, the cries for mercy are normal for the Christian life. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Friends, are you in need of mercy today? It comes first by admitting our sin, acknowledging to God that we have sinned against him. We ask God to forgive us of our rebellion against him and plead for his steadfast love and mercy upon us. And that mercy can only be known through Jesus Christ, his death For us on the cross, his resurrection from the dead. Now there's a progression to this text. We don't just wallow in sin. Here's one of the that you could stay in like verses one through five, have mercy, but man, I just know my sin. I'm sin, 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 and just focus on our sin, and we wallow there. We don't see David doing that. He doesn't just stay there. You need to be aware of your sin, you need to ask for mercy, but you just don't stay there. So here's what happens. Point number two requesting cleansing and restoring joy. Verse six Behold, you delight in truth in my inward being, you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Prince David's aware of God's favor toward him. David's life has been one of favor toward God. He knows God's desire to have. David live according to his word, to obedience, to, to living by the truth. God is the teacher of the truth, and that wisdom will go deep for David. Verse 70 he then says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. The, the purge and cleansing language is, is from Leviticus, that atoning sacrifice that cleanses the sinner, or that leper who is cleansed of leprosy. Or the garment that is stained, that becomes white as snow. I mean, I was dealing with this like yesterday. We had a kid with a bloody nose. They got bloody while they were sleeping. It was like a death scene. So I'm spraying stuff and trying to get the stuff out yesterday. And I thought about this. I didn't even think about this text until this morning. I was reviewing it, and I was like, huh, that's interesting. Nasty, bloody stain that you're trying to get out. And I didn't get it whiter than snow. Still there. can still see the imprint. But that's not what God's grace does. God's grace gets it whiter than snow. washes whiter than snow. Note this. In this passage, the deepest sorrows of our sin can lead to the greatest moments of praise when we understand forgiveness and mercy. When we see the depths of our sin, we gain more appreciation for the Savior. When we see the depths of our sin, we say, That sin too was nailed to the cross. Jesus died for that too. He knew about that too. And the cross gets grander and bigger. Thank you, Lord. Verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. See, there really are wounds. There really are broken bones. There really are consequences to the sin. We've talked about some direct consequences to David's sin. There's ripple effects in relationships for years. I can't even imagine what the Bathsheba-David marriage is like. That's a weird one. Like, that'll be interesting to ask in heaven one day. Not a great way to start a relationship, friends. Like that whole deal. And though there are real consequences and real sin, David longs to hear joy and gladness again. He longs to, to dance and rejoice again in the forgiveness of God. David longs for restored relationship with God. And isn't that what we want in the midst of our sin? Is a restored relationship? Because I I broke my relationship. I rebelled against you, God. I need restoration. Remember, David's known as the man after God's own heart. He's had good relationship with God. He wrote many of the Psalms, some we've already uh, taught about in the psalm series, before this rebellion. Deep relationship with God, walking with God. And friends, let this be a warning to us. We could be the most godly person in this room, but we could slowly walk toward compromise. We could harden ourselves and a year from now, we could be doing things we would never say we would do. Like, David is exceptional in his godliness and yet he fell. And did the unthinkable. Let us be warned. Verse 9, he then says, Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. This verse is kind of the center point of the psalm. Uh, in a, if you know what a chiastic structure is, it's a literary device where different like ideas kind of start paralleling. This would be the center point of it, of, of this psalm. David, knowing he, he needs God to hide his face from his sin blot out his iniquities because God doesn't want, or David doesn't want God to hide his face from him. See, David prays a prayer that looks to a future fulfillment. David's sin will be placed upon the once for all time sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Just as we look back for salvation through the cross, the Old Testament people were looking forward to that Messiah who would die for their sins and pay the price. The only way David's sin could be blotted out is through the shed blood of the perfect Lamb of God in his place. Verse 10 then says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Create is is Genesis language. That word create, we need God to do something only God can do. David needs a new heart. A God-breathed, created newness of life. Friends, this is the prayer of the repentant. Lord, cleanse my heart. I need renewal. I need God to do His work because I cannot do this by myself. Verse 11, Cast me not away from Your presence. Take not Your Holy Spirit from me. Now let's note that God casting David away from His presence is exactly what David deserves. That's called hell. Being away from the favorable presence of God. But David also saw King Saul and how King Saul had the Holy Spirit taken from him, the anointing of the king lost, and David pleads that that would not happen to him. Let's note, friends, that in the Old Testament, this is how the Holy Spirit works. It's no longer this way we see in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit kind of came and went and came and went. Now in the New Testament, since Jesus' death and resurrection, the Holy Spirit is an ongoing seal. We're sealed with the Spirit, this ongoing helper. So we actually don't pray this, this one line the same way the psalmist did, but we do pray verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Note that verses 10 through 12 really show us what's revealed by Ezekiel and others about the need of God's people, the cleansing, the new heart, the spirit. Look at on the screen, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27 says I this is God's promise to his people I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from your uncleanness from all your idols I will cleanse you And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And then get this. And you shall be my people and I will be your God. That's essentially what David's pleading for. A cleansing A new heart, the Spirit. Friends, those of us who are in Christ, what David was pleading for is what we get. In Christ Jesus, this is what we have. Jesus cleansed us as he died on the cross and rose from the grave and accredited to us his righteousness. He he takes out our old hard heart and gives us a new heart. He gives us and fills us with the Holy Spirit that we're sealed with. We have right relationship with him. We are his people and he is our God. Like friends, we get the, the very thing David's pleading for. That, my friends, is good news. And there's another shift in the text from repentance to restoration, and now from restoration to mission. We've got to get that understanding. I think that understanding even affects how we think about life today. From repentance to restoration, and restoration to mission. Second point, or third point, sorry, is renewing mission, admitting brokenness. Verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. The guy who's broken and sinned grievously and is like on his face before God says, I get a new heart, I get cleansing and here's what I'm going to do. I'm focusing outward and I'm calling other people back. I don't want them to do what I did. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will return to you. Notice David is seeing his mission and purpose here. He's getting clarity in what life is all about when you walk away from sin and walk toward the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Verse 14 and 15 Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing along with your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. So in verses 13 through 15, we have a restored David, a a restored sinner, who's teaching others, singing, praising, and speaking of God's righteousness. Isn't that a very different tune that's starting from what we started with? This person is walking in right relationship with God. He's aware of his forgiveness, being forgiven. He's aware of God calling him toward witness. Friends, before we shift to verses 15 through 17, we've got to note something. And it's this, the effects of sin on mission. The effects that sin has on us doing mission. Sometimes we don't think about this. Like We're like, oh, how are we doing on on mission evangelism outreach thing? There are massive effects that squelch that. Sin not only has a say, sin not only has us say yes to what we should say no to, but sin also has us say no to things that we should say yes to. So the husband or wife stuck in pornography is not only saying yes to lust and rebellion against God, they're saying no to pursuing loving affection for their spouse. They're saying no to surprising and delighting their spouse. They're saying no to pursuing their children and discipling them. They're saying no to checking with friends and their community group and d group. They're saying no to a whole host of things. So, friends, when we're saying yes to sin, we are saying no to a whole host of things. That's a big deal that we often don't think about. Friends, our sin makes us turn in on ourselves But God's grace, mercy, and forgiveness points us and turns us outward. I'll teach transgressors your way, and sinners will return to you. You just got to think his mouth was closed. David's mouth was closed in shame. He's not going to teach transgressors about God when he's living as a transgressor, right? Right? How hard is it to talk to your kids about the Lord when you know you're angry or you've got sin with your spouse or you lusted or whatever, and you're, you're living in sin and now you're trying to, you just feel like a little hypocrite, right? But now when we understand the mercy, the steadfast love, the grace of God, we can turn. We can turn upward toward the mission and outward Declare the truth. It reminds me of the woman at the well in John chapter 4. She's in hiding. Like when, when Jesus comes to her, she's not around any of the other ladies. It's noonday. That's not when ladies go get water. She's in hiding. She, she finds out a man who tells her everything she did. She goes back to the village and starts telling everybody about Jesus, right? She's seen him, she understands forgiveness. The fount of living water is offered to her. Friends, the fount of living water is offered to you in the midst of your sin right now. You can repent. You can receive forgiveness. And then you can turn to the mission of the King of kings and Lord of lords. That is the abundant life that is promised through Christ. Friends, some of us are stuck in sin and not repenting. The call today is to repent. And some of us have repented, but we've gotten stuck realizing not realizing that the mission needs to go forward. Like we just kind of repented, then we just stay there. It's like, no, we're supposed to be the ones teaching transgressors God's ways and sinners coming to him. We need to look outward. That's why we say we treasure, apply, and proclaim. We don't just treasure, apply the gospel. We treasure, apply, and proclaim the gospel. We demonstrate and declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we don't do it because we're strong. Now I've repented. I'm ready to go. Let's go. Like you're not a football player getting pumped up, running out on the field. The, you know, the smoke's going or whatever. That's not it. Look what happens in the text. Verse 16 and 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. A broken and contrite spirit. The person going forward in mission is aware of their sin, they're they're aware of forgiveness and mercy given, and they're walking out the mission humbly, saying, "I, I can't do this apart from God. I know who I am, who I've been. I need, I need you, God. I need to I need to live for you. I got nothing. Verse 19 will say that God would delight in right sacrifices, but the real right sacrifice is not just outward action. It's not even just mission. It's not honoring God with our lips, but our hearts are far from him. God delights in a heart that is broken over our sin. He delights in a heart that's humble before him. It delights in a heart that is no longer contending for supremacy with God. Friends, your humility Before God is key in fighting sin and living on mission. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Isaiah 66, 2, God's gaze is on the humble. And in this passage, Psalm 51, the text says, He will not despise the humble. Friends, are you growing in humility Are you daily pulling the weeds of pride out of your heart, asking the Spirit to do that, and sowing seeds of humility? Friends, humility will keep you from a whole host of regret and sin. If David would have been humble in 2 Samuel 11, I think he would have gone out to battle. Leading like he was supposed to be. If David would have been humble, he would have turned to God instead of lingering and watching and lusting after Bathsheba. If David would have been humble, he would have quickly stopped in his tracks when he, he found out that's Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. If David would have been humble, he wouldn't have summoned Uriah to kill him. He would have summoned Uriah to repent to him. There were so many places along this story that he could have been humble, humbled himself before God and before others. So Psalm 51 is a warning and a witness to us. It's a model for us on how to repent when we've sinned and how to walk out life once we've sinned and walk in the goodness and mercy of God. Commentator James Hamilton says this of this psalm. I think it's helpful David desires more than forgiveness in this psalm. He prays to be transformed into a man who loves holiness and acts on that love. Friends, do do we just want forgiveness? Like if you're struggling, if you're one who's in here and you're just like aware of sin to be repented of, do you just want sin forgiven or do you want a transformed life? Because God comes to you offering a transformed life, a transformed heart, a a love for holiness. So Christopher is going to come, and we're just going to sing for a minute and have a time of confession, have a time of praise, have a time of recounting God's goodness and mercy to us. Friends, if you don't know Christ, is the time to, to turn from your sin and turn to Christ pleading for mercy. We're going to sing. And then after we sing this song, we're going to partake in communion together. We're going to partake in that meal of restoration that Jesus says, this is my broken body for your broken life. This is my shed blood for your sin, for your rebellion against me. It's the family It's coming into the family. It's welcomed to the table. So we're going to do that after we sing. Let's stand together and let's sing together.